New Narratives for the Northeast, brought to you by New Writing North. Telling fresh stories. Exploring the historical legacies. to the future of the Northeast. Welcome to this special extra edition to the New Narratives for the Northeast podcast series. My name's Claire Malcolm and I run New Writing North who commissioned the work. Inspiration for writing often comes from the world around us. In many ways, the writing process is a reformation of fragments of our experience. External references, fact-checking and engaging with ideas outside of ourselves can be vital to the creative process. Yet the writer retains their authorship when it's all stitched together. It becomes a slightly different matter when you write with other people. The writers, Lizette Orton, Carmen Marcus and Mim Skinner, have each written pieces for this project that involve external voices in their work in particular ways. What you're about to hear is a discussion we had about their unique approaches. We spoke about the merits of collaborative writing and overcoming the complexities that arise when you take this approach. I began by getting them to introduce themselves. I'm Lizette Orton. I'm a writer. I work in all sorts of forms and really important to me and this project is the fact that I am disabled. Hello, I'm Carmen Marcus and I am a writer, author, poet and practitioner. I'm Mim Skinner. I'm a writer half-time and a community worker the other half of the time, running a pay-as-you-feel cafe in Chesterley Street and so the piece is about the cafe. Fantastic. Lizette, you said in your introduction then that you were a disabled writer. Your piece, Writing the Missing, is a provocative piece that's really challenging the idea of where disabled writers and artists are in our cultural life. Can you say a little bit more about how that piece came to you, why you thought that was the thing you wanted to write for New Narratives? It's part of a wider project called Writing the Missing, which I'm working on in lots of different forms and mediums. And to have this opportunity, this big stage, in order to present something, it had to be more than just me. So I came up with a fact that 25% of people in the northeast of England are disabled. And I immediately realised that a quarter of us do not take up that cultural space. So I wanted to do an investigation as to why not, because it isn't, and how hopefully this could be a provocation to maybe make some action happen and make that start. And so therefore... We're living in COVID times. I was hoping that it would be more collaborative writing, but disabled people at the moment are shielding, are in spaces where we need to be to be safe and we're taking things a bit more slowly. So I wanted disabled voices from the Northeast. So I gave them lots of questions and took their answers and then concocted a lyrical essay using those as like a Greek chorus. So instead of collaborating with the writing with them, it was voices off and it was their words exactly as they wrote them. And in terms of the process, were you going backwards and forwards or did you do one big round of asking questions and then work with the material? 
It was a big round of questions to which I'd said, you can give me three words, you can give me 12 notebooks full, you can ignore some questions, you can go off on a tangent, you can do what you want, but these are, these are your starting points. And then when that came in, it's a question of just cutting and pasting. And um, some of them had requested to remain anonymous. So that was something that I decided to do for, for all of the piece. So they are just a voices off. And then because it's verbatim, and that's what I always do, there's no need to go back and forth. These people have said what they've said. The comma is there. The full stop is there. That's what I can use. And I can't manipulate it. I can't go, oh, but if I just put that bit there, that would be nicer for my argument. Or that would be so much more poetic if I changed that word to that one. Tough. It is what it is. Mim, your piece is a kind of merger of your life as a writer and your day job, isn't it? Or part of the day job. Can you tell us about the place you work and how it's become the focus for your essay? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I've really, really loved bringing writing into that space as well and being able to write about that community. Refuse started with just me and my best friend six years ago now, collecting cabbages from the end of the market and storing them in our sitting room and, and having people around for meals in, in borrowed spaces. And uh, five years on from then, we now have a premises in Chesley Street with a big warehouse and collect and redistribute over 10 tonnes a month and have restaurant nights. And we've had this community that's brought something of themselves in a way that's that's made it grow in ways that have been unexpected and amazing and I felt very, very passionate about being able to communicate some of this. And, and uh, I remember once my partner came along to a meal we had and we were celebrating one of our volunteers having, having gained refugee status and people from really, really different backgrounds who the papers would tell you don't get on and aren't friends were kind of dancing around the cafe. And I remember my partner saying, God, if only you could capture this and tell people, this is the story of our place, this is the story of our area. And he said, oh, you know, if you could put that in a funding application and people really understood, <laughs> you'd be fine for the next five years. So part of it was thinking, how can we communicate some of the just amazing relationships that people have with one another and the kindnesses towards one another in that space? And it would have been easy, I suppose. You're a writer that's written from a distance about uh, life in prison for women and things like that. You could have approached this essay in the same way, couldn't you? Kind of giving voice to real people. But you chose to go further than that and to involve the people that were being written about in the process of knowing they were being written about. I mean, that strikes me as quite a complicated thing to do. Yeah, so some of the, the writing I've done in prison, we, we went through a kind of peer editing process, but the nature of it was that lots of people who were inside couldn't be part of that. And so people were peer editing stories that weren't necessarily theirs. But some of the learning that I took from that was actually the richness that, that people brought when you're interrupted from your own narrow voice or my own narrow voice. What I'd hoped to do and what, what we pitched at the start was with lots of people going around the cafe, just having their normal day, but with recorders in their pockets and capturing some of that conversation and the pub after the volunteer shift. But of course, lockdown happened and that shifted a lot of the story. So um, the content was gathered on WhatsApp. I uh, employed one of our volunteers as an assistant on the project. So her words are in as 
as her own words, but she kind of helped to to weave in the themes that, that other volunteers suggested um, into her writing and write those up at stories. And then we had a kind of lots and lots of back and forth. How interesting. I mean, I think that interesting about one of the interesting things about what you've written is that you do, as a reader, get a hint into the darker, more difficult stuff or the things that might be challenging for some of those people. Did you feel compromised at all in your own approach in terms of what you might have wanted to say about that place and the people in it? Initially, we we both took ourselves out because we thought, actually, it doesn't really make sense to have one person telling a narrative when there are actually all these voices that are just so, so essential to how the space runs. And actually, almost everybody who read it said, oh, it's amazing, but don't put that nice thing about me. Take me out and put that other person in. It was just such a gorgeous process. And actually, part of what happened there as well is that it ended up being this very, very light and cheery story because all of us who are editing it were also very, very invested in it. And for us, it's our, our community and our family. And so we then had to have some people external to say, oh, gosh, is it always that rosy, <laughs> you know? And uh, and actually to say, do you know what? It, it's really important that there's some narration there rather than this absent person. And Carmen, your piece is, I would say, more fictional than both Mims and Lizette's, but you describe it as a piece of collaborative writing. Can you tell us about what you mean by that? Yeah, um, the overall piece, Finfolk, is a series of micro-stories, a series of micro-myths, um, about the North that foreground the sea as a place that has no boundaries and has no borders. And so when you focus on the sea, it becomes collecting stories, beachcombing, I suppose, that of people who leave and people who arrive. So I have always lived by the sea. So that wasn't a story that I could tell. So I had to go out and seek people who'd washed up on these shores and hear about their experience of, of what it was like to be here. And so the method that I use to do that is to create a prompt, to create a creative writing prompt and send it out there. What I'd love to have done, you know, without COVID is to have invited people into a space, tea, biscuits, and talked about all of those things, but had to fully utilise digital media. But that that was part of the process. And it, it really, really worked because people were really looking to think and write and do something that wasn't about this undercurrent of anxiety that was dominating their lives. But it was this, honestly, it was this really bizarre way of going about making a story had these fragments of voices and these fragments of events and they're only ever half fact and half fiction and that's how it came together and I knew that the overheard conversation was something that I wanted to go for because it's the kind of thing that Elliot did and Elliot um, The Wasteland was written in 1922 which was just after a massive shift, death on an unprecedented scale. Oh, here we are in 1920 with death on an unprecedented scale of what we just don't understand. And he got this idea of fragmented voices, but he used religion and classical literature and I wanted to use real people's voices. And I, I really felt that coming through in what Mim was saying, what Lizette was saying, in giving a space and giving a platform to these multiple voices that often go unheard or misrepresented. Well, can I just stop you there? Well, not stop you, but ca capture that thought because it strikes me that that is quite important to all three of you. There's a reason you all decided to approach the pieces in this way that to me does seem quite timely or in each 
of your contexts feels like things have reached a point where there is something to say or there's a collective thing to say. And when we started this project, I remember talking to all of the writers and some of you more particularly about whether or not the fact that we were in this COVID moment, commissioned in the middle at the start of a pandemic, written during a pandemic. And I think in all of the pieces that has come out either very directly because with Mim's piece, you kind of took on that moment and talked about it. But I also feel, Lizette, with your piece, that there is this feeling of we have to come out of this moment with things changed and now is the time to have a different kind of conversation, a more, you know, proactive conversation about disability. Do you think that's what made you all approach the pieces in this way? Was it that idea of you were being asked to look at quite a big question, this idea of future narratives? And it seems to me you all felt you needed to, you wanted to bring other people on that creative journey to answer that question? I really felt that because I feel like the people in the North have been spoken about We've been spoken to, but we've never had a platform to speak for ourselves. Interesting. Mim, I mean, obviously, a lot of the work you're doing on a day-to-day basis, you know, is really dealing with a lot of the people who are falling off around the edges of society or the care systems in society. So that inherently makes it quite political, quite campaigny, doesn't it? Was that important? Yeah, I think the important thing in terms of including all the voices, is it would be difficult for me to write a piece about a space being so collaborative a space and which benefits from the richness of the different people that come to it, but then was told only through my voice. Yeah, I I didn't necessarily do it in order to kind of platform all these people although I hope that's a a drift from it I just felt like a space which is so so defined by the hundreds of people that that pass through it it wouldn't have worked creatively either to to tell that with a single voice and a single perspective. Lizette did you feel there was a timely moment to this I mean you said earlier this is part of a much longer term project you're working on but I wonder if a year ago in spring 2019 you would have immediately taken this approach for something like this? Is it of the moment? I think it's um, an always moment. (laughs) It always needs to be said. For me personally, in my journey through learning who I am as a disabled person, it's prime time for me. But also I think because we are in COVID times, which as people move through the world in different ways, I'm really scared that disabled people are going to be left behind it was wonderful when everyone started going oh access and all the stuff that we'd been demanding for years non-disabled people wanted so all of a sudden we were able to work from home oh that meeting that there's no way you can't do unless you're here in person all of a sudden you could and now things may go back to a before and not doing this meshing of stuff together so yeah for me especially with the labels that disabled people have had through this time and the way things have been, it's even more important than, I suppose, by using a chorus, I had a bit of a backup. So it was saying it's not just me saying that this is necessary. Other people think this too. I mean, we often think of writers as being 
very skilled at overhearing or listening very well to people on buses and things like that famous Alan Bennett um, way of writing. This strikes me as a very different kind of process, but also a little more dangerous because you're opening yourself up and your process up to other people as well, which is not something writers usually rush towards doing. (laughs) Have you any reflections on that kind of, you know, the challenge of that or the fact that you might be quite unusual as a set of writers who are interested in that? Yeah, um, I've talked about this quite a lot. I do a bit of journalism and so and so speak to other journalists and, and we talk a lot about having accountability for the words that we write and, and, and checking in with the community. But the fact is that stories are living and somebody might say, yes, that's what I want to be portrayed as. But then time goes on and people change and, and that's set in stone. And I think that there is no better accountability than writing about the community that are part of the fabric of your life. And I think that that is challenging in a way that it should be and in a way that betters everyone. And that kind of accountability, not just, oh, sign a consent form, brilliant, I've got it now, job done, tick the box, but in a way that makes you really active in your need to be accountable to the communities you write about. I definitely agree with Mim about accountability. I'd never thought of it in those terms before, but absolutely. I think for me as a writer, I take I take different approaches for for different things. This was very much a fictional piece. And I get wary, and I suppose the word is bored, of my own voice and my own style. And I'm also terrified of actively challenging that because it's great to find a groove and a current as a writer and you feel confident in that space and whether, you know, we call it a comfort zone or whatever, but you know no new knowledge is to be had there. And so I like to walk up right to the cliff edge and jump and see where the impact with other people's minds is going to take me. And then immediately after that step of jumping off, like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? This is so hard. Why have I set out on this task? Why can't I just write something normally? But at the same time, there's a responsibility to myself as a writer to make sure that I'm challenging myself and forcing myself into the unknown and the unassumed. There's a responsibility, as you say, Mim, to the people and communities that we're writing about so that we're not just speaking for other people, so that we're collecting those voices. So, yeah, I really wholeheartedly think that it's part of the creative endeavour to keep forcing yourself into the unknown and challenging yourself into that slightly terrifying space. Lizette, anything to add to that? Agree completely with both of those. Far better articulated than I could have done. So I'm just going to go, yes, Mim, yes, Carmen, both of those. But also I think for me, you know, Claire, you talked about that overhearing on the bus. I'm not getting that at the moment. I'm I'm at, at home or I'm in my little office. For the first time in forever, over the course of two days, I met two people that I knew in very safe, very far apart outside things. But I haven't done that since March. And I am missing so much overheard conversations. And I thought I was full of inspiration as a writer. I'm actually really dull and I've got nothing to say or think of. It's those finding those scraps that then lead to something beautiful and clever and you twiddle in your own brain. And I'm a bit scrapless at the moment. So working in this way was purely 
selfish. It gave me scraps of things to, to be able to work and play with. And I miss that now. It's very interesting. I mean, one of my reflections, I don't know what you will say about this. I'm aware we're four women sitting in a room and I'm aware that, you know, you were three of our commissions who wrote, choose, chose this approach to collaborative writing. None of the men did who we've commissioned. Is there anything gendered about this that would be interesting to, to consider? For me, there's an interesting parallel between um, the worlds I occupy around business. So we run a, a social enterprise and I'm a director of that social enterprise and we meet in the space that is social enterprises in the region, which is overwhelmingly female. And I also occupy some space locally within within the other businesses and the business groups and the directors of those companies and the leaders of those businesses are overwhelmingly male. And what's interesting about that is the people that are asking the question, how do we disrupt what it means to do business and how do we do business in such a way that asks how does this transaction and this industry benefit the place it's in and how do we do business in a way that is ethical and changes what we mean by profit and the people that are saying let's disrupt what we mean by that are typically women and for me I've always found that to be just such an interesting space to be part of that when women go into business, of course there are women who are doing business in this realm and men doing business here, but actually there's this trend that it's women saying, how can we do this differently? And and I think it's probably not particularly surprising that there are three women who are writing about places and communities who've asked, how can we do things differently? Very interesting. Lizette? I don't know whether it's gendered at all, but I've always been brought up to share. And if I have a platform and if there's by limitations placed on by funding or whatever, if there's not as many places to go around as there are people that want it, well, if I've got a bit of my bit that I can share out and that will add to whatever I'm doing as well, selfishly, then, then yeah, I'm always up for that as to, I mean... I don't know the gender thing, but I mean, there's something going on here, isn't there? All, all four of us sitting here are women and it is a conversation that we're having. And it's the same with you, Mim, in places that um, are really powering forwards disruption. It's women or feminists or men who are going, yes, I'm going to stand back. You go for it. And they're the kind of places I want to be in. I think it's fascinating that it's all women but it's terrifying to move into that territory of, you know, the women who like to talk and listen kind of stereotype. But I just wonder, listening to what Lizette is saying and what, what Mim is saying, and I don't know if it was if your motivation came from the same place as me, but I'm really suspicious of the single authorship of any idea and really suspicious of any idea of originality when it comes to a story because my history with story my first encounters with story have always been through the oral tradition and that means that story is a shared and collaborative event so we tell a story in the kitchen and someone adds their version and another person adds their version and another person says well I didn't hear it like that so I don't know whether it is a female thing, but it's for me, it's definitely a suspicion around the idea of single authorship. And if you are telling a story that tells a story of plays, you have to 
whether it's through digital media or reaching out or through prompts, create that kitchen space of this is the way I heard it. Did you hear it the same? It also seems to me to be something the Northeast is traditionally very good at. You know, when you're thinking about strong communities, community activism, I'm thinking about the women at the time of the miners' strike and the kind of social action and easy gathering together and empowerment that happened. You know, we have that in our recent past and culture. It seems to me something that feels quite northeastern. I'm sure it happens in other parts of the country, but I, we do, you know, we have a really clear contemporary legacy of some of that here. So maybe it's more about that, but it's about how our communities work and how we view who those communities are, whether they're people on the seashore or in a cafe or whether they're people who share life experience and lived experience that brings them together. I mean, it's interesting trying to grasp and find new narratives for the Northeast. We've had a lot of different things suggested, a lot of different ideas suggested. But I think one of the things that is coming through many of the pieces of the work is this idea of collective endeavour and a place that is about collections of people who find each other, either in micro ways in their communities or whose identity brings them together, kind of powering up what the future might be. So I think it's really interesting that your pieces all took us into this interesting conversation about who we collaborate with. I'd like to end by just asking you all whether or not this feels like a very exciting way of writing or a way of writing that might offer us all more in the future. For me, a lyrical essay, which Carmen brilliantly helped me title Once Upon a Time Many Moons Ago, is something that I've been playing with for a long time, um, starting out in small ways and it's getting bigger and bigger and I can't see that stopping in my practice because I enjoy it too much and I like the challenge. As Carmen said earlier, oh my goodness, sometimes halfway through I'm thinking, you are a complete twit. You could have just written this all by yourself and taken in that, that journey that you knew it was going to go. And now all of a sudden your end's going to have to change, your middle's going to have to change, and then you're going to have to go back to the beginning and change that because this ain't what you thought it was going to be. But there's something seat of the pants brilliant about that. So I, I'm not stopping. I'd like to work out a way that makes it slightly more like I want to vomit halfway through. But once I've sorted that, it'll be great. I think the fear is a really important part of this creative process. I think something new and really interesting is happening. I actually, let's be suspicious of the word new. I think we are experimenting with forms of, of story that, are being created in new ways that invite new voices because we're very aware of the silences and the exclusions in the way that traditional stories are told. And now we have the means, perhaps the means used to be oral storytelling around a fire or in a kitchen, but now we have the means digitally to invite new voices into our work, which is really exciting and really terrifying. Like the other said, uh, I am really interested in using much more collaborative practices going ahead with writing. And for me, the next big challenge is how do I make pieces of journalism that I write uh, more collaborative and, and finding space for those forms of media to include a breadth of voices in, in a way which I think they do abominably. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm very struck, Carmen, by what you said about inviting new voices in, you know, voices that have been silenced or just have never been looked at or invited into a conversation. I mean, I think that's probably a perfect summary of 
what the three of you have have done in these pieces of work in different ways. You know, we've got new voices representing new ideas, but also asking questions about or suggesting answers to the questions of how we might go about the future, which I guess, in a way, is what we were really looking for with the new narratives project. So congratulations for doing that really well, but also doing it in a really interesting way that I think will, you know, for probably all of you individually, but maybe also for our writing community in the Northeast, suggest some new ideas about how we might proceed with projects or new ideas about who we write with and what that means. So thank you all. If you want to read the full essays by the writers you've been listening to, who were Mim Skinner, Lizette Orton and Carmen Marcus, you can do that on the Durham Book Festival website, where you can also find a podcast series exploring all of the essays and creative writing that were part of the project. Do have a listen. It's all really great. for the Northeast is a new writing North commission of the Northeast Cultural Partnership supported by the Heritage Lottery Fund. The series is produced for Durham Book Festival, a Durham County Council Festival supported by Durham University and Arts Council England. It was made in York by Sonderbook Productions with music specially composed and recorded in Newcastle by Jane Dent. Find out more about the project and read the original essays and stories on the Dome Book Festival website.